HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. Welcome Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome cooking teacher and award-winning cookbook author, Molly Stevens. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Molly all about dinner which conveniently happens to be the title of her latest cookbook. And we'll hear Molly's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia's passion for teaching really stemmed from two things, her thirst for knowledge and her desire to share. Now, these alone do not make for the perfect teacher. Everyone can think of a teacher or professor they had who wasn't quite so engaging. But Julia was big time. Her ability to connect on camera and on the page was unparalleled. She knew how to make you feel like if she could do it, you could do it, and in her books, she provided clarity and a guiding hand. She really knew how to instill confidence. It was often as if she magically came into your kitchen and held your hand so you felt sure the souffle would rise and you wouldn't be intimidated by a whole rack of lamb. Now, someone with a similar ethos to Julia's is Molly Stevens. Molly is a classically, as in in France, trained chef, cooking instructor, recipe developer, and a James Beard and IACP award-winning author of All About Braising and All About Roasting. Her books are revered for their pragmatic approach to building kitchen know-how. She's been named Cooking Teacher of the Year by both Bon Appetit and IACP. Widely published food writer, she also holds a master's degree from Middlebury's aptly named Bread Loaf School of English, and she's a proud Vermonter. Molly joins us today to talk about her latest mouthwatering cookbook, All About Dinner, Simple Meals, Expert Advice. Yes, the expert is in, just in time to help bolster your New Year's resolution to raise the bar on your everyday dinners. Welcome to the podcast, Molly. Thanks, Todd. I'm thrilled to be here. We're delighted to have you. And so we're going to start very philosophically. What's the value of a home-cooked dinner? Oh, gosh, so much, so much. Um, The value of a home-cooked dinner, I just, I feel if everybody cooked dinner more often, or every so often, everything would be a lot better. There's a, it's a pause in the day, it's a chance to bring people together, it's a chance to up your own cooking game, you know, quite simply, the more you cook, the better cook you become, 
uh, connects you to your ingredients. It connects you to the people around you. Even if it's if you're by yourself, it connects you to yourself. It's healthier. It's economical. Um, I could go on and on about the value of a home cooked dinner. Now, I think I read. I can't remember whether it, it, it. I read this in All About Dinner itself or somewhere else in in looking up what you've said about cooking. But there, you, you you talk about almost like mindfulness when it comes to cooking and how that's a benefit. Yes, and for me, it goes back to when I started cooking, which was I was in high school and looking for you know I needed jobs to get some spending money and through college and everything else. And cooking for me was a place where I just felt so grounded. I just in the kitchen. Everything kind of quieted down for me, and I've always found the kitchen a very peaceful place. But as I've, you know, continued on my career and and worked with in, in teaching and, and working to teach others how to cook, I've found that there is this calming effect of cooking dinner if you approach it. You know, you need a certain mindset, but. And I understand that cooking can be stressful for some people, but there are ways to make it calming. And the the more you set aside a little bit of time, clear a little bit of space, set your mind to what you're doing, pay attention to the ingredients in front of you, pay attention to your actions, pay attention to the heat level. All those things quiet the voices, quiet the noise, quiet the chatter, quiet the busyness of daily life, and give us a moment to find a little bit of calm in the kitchen. Yeah, I like yeah. I liked a, a video watch of you. You said something about the peeling carrots. Could you just go over that aphorism? Yeah, so so it's this, if you're peeling a carrot, just really peel the carrot. Like Pay attention and look at how the dusty outer color peels away and the brighter, if it's an orange carrot, comes out. Or maybe you've got a purple carrot or a yellow carrot. And, and to see that color and then maybe, and you feel it's a little, there's a little more moist on the inside under the, under the dryer outside. And then snap off a piece of the carrot and take a bite of it and feel, even when you snap it, hear the snap and feel how fresh it is. Or maybe it didn't snap so hard, as hard as the last time you had a carrot. And so maybe it's not as fresh as the last one. And then you take a bite and is it a sweet carrot or is it a, has it, you know, overwintered and maybe it's a woodier carrot and all that one it focuses your you have to focus your attention to do that and then two when you do that you're learning about the carrot so then as you cook with it you're like oh I made a carrot soup and it was sweeter this time or it was needed more stock than last time and all of that information you're gathering so it's sort of a win-win not only I find it's calming you down because you're, you're so focused on it but also you're learning about your ingredients and how your how your actions are affecting those ingredients and that's making you a better cook. And while you're not necessarily known as like a, a health food writer and certainly you write about meat quite a lot, which, which has its pros and cons, but you, you kind of mention about your point of view that cooking dinner and cooking from scratch in whatever form scratch takes is, is also part of leading a healthy lifestyle. I, uh, yes, I believe that. And I, I think of Julia in this too, and her, you know, moderation in all things, including moderation. But when you cook from scratch, and I've seen this happen time and time again with, with um, students in that, and as, as you said before, Todd, whatever form scratch takes for you, but um, you, when you're paying attention to your ingredients, you just automatically instinctively gravitate toward better ingredients. We go back to that carrot, say the carrot you pull out of the bag because you bought it wherever you didn't pay attention you just grabbed it you pull out of the bag and it's kind of slimy or dried out or not very sweet maybe the next time you buy carrots you're gonna say wow I wonder if there are better carrots out there you start to the, the more focused you are on the scratch ingredients the basic ingredients you just instinctively want to bring better ingredients into your kitchen to work with okay so we'll move from the philosophy to um, what I think is quite an impressively brilliant and deceptively simple new book all about dinner. And I thought, first, let, let's start sort of big picture contextualizing it from, from your point of view. Um, and, and I'm not sort of looking at asking you like a landscape analysis of your own, but just in the, the fact that there's kind of an explosion of cookbooks now, both everywhere from silly to serious to, to very health-focused. When you wrote this book, where did you see it fitting into the to what has become a very vast landscape, and who is it for? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
when I wrote this book, so you mentioned in, before that I wrote a book on braising and I wrote a book on roasting, and I wanted to write a book, and this, the, the answer is sort of convoluted, because I wanted to write a book that really reflects how I cook, how I relate to food, because as I say in the introduction, I think the way we relate to food says more about who we are as individuals than a lot of things. And to me, our connection to food is a connection to community and to agriculture and to um, and to family and all these um, parts of our lives. And so I love the braising, the braising and the roasting book, super proud of them. They both have these giant pieces of meat on the cover, um, rightly so. But I wanted a book that embraced the what I cook every day, just, just the, the, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday uh, vegetable forward, every kind of grains, legumes, things like that. So I felt like at this point in my career, I wanted a book that could really um, embrace the breadth of, of the cooking and the recipes that I've that I've made, you know, through my lifetime and, and uh, on a daily basis. And then the other thing, it's so interesting right now. I mean, I remember going to you know, conferences or reading articles 20 years ago, 30 years ago when I was starting out and wondering, you know, is the internet going to be the death of the recipe or the cookbook? And I mean, cookbooks are exploding and I think it's so exciting. And I love that there's such a vast array of cookbooks. There's so much for people to choose from. Um, and I like to think that my book is, is a voice and, you know, it's my voice and that people find the voices that resonate for them and anything that brings more people into the kitchen or more people in relationship with, with cooking, um, to me is just such a positive. And we have, it's so exciting to be a part of the number of books that are out there right now. I just feel I was at a bookstore yesterday, um, and my book was on a table with just incredible books, and it's really exciting. And I can't stop buying cookbooks <laughs> myself. No, I know it's like people keep talking about peak TV. I also think we're maybe at peak cookbook as well. I know they keep saying that, but then you they keep coming up with new and right now you're right there's an explosion of these everyday cookbooks and sort of the chef cookbook the very restaurant focused book where it was food that you know was not as accessible to home cooks those seem to be declining a little bit and now they're books about feeding ourselves every day and that to me is there's a simplicity there's a retreat to home there's a nesting quality of that and I think sometimes you know the world we all need to step away every now and then and, and turn off our screens and just make a nice meal. Well, and, and I just, just in case someone heard the word braising or roasting and think we're getting all technical, I, I want to talk about something that I think really sets up. There, there's some really brilliant and lovely recipes in here, but it, 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 I think you could definitely define this book as approachable and that it's written both for people who are already very experienced in the kitchen, but also people who may be a little bit more tenuous. And for that, I was very surprised, if not shocked, to find a recipe for grilled cheese, especially since um, the shock came in two forms, I think, finding a recipe for it in the first place from you. And then beyond that, you have this like trade secret that you reveal that blew my mind. So tell us what that is. Okay, so the trade secret is to, instead of buttering the bread, to, you know, to make a grilled cheese, you need some sort of fat on the outside of the bread. So when you put the sandwich on the skillet or the griddle, it will cook and get all brown and crusty. So instead of butter, um, I borrowed a technique from Gabriel Hamilton at Prune, and it's mayonnaise. You spread the outside of the bread with mayonnaise. And the reason for this, and it's a technique that's now been taken by, um, I've seen Martha Stewart do it. Um, I think Alison Roman does it. It's a, it's a technique that has taken on... Um, some some notoriety but the the brilliance of it is that the you don't have to have room temperature butter because if you're trying to make a grilled cheese sandwich on the fly which is often when we're making grilled cheese sandwich because if you have bread and cheese in your house you've got a, a sandwich um so but if the butter's not softened that's incredibly annoying and frustrating to try to spread cold butter on the bread but beyond the convenience the mayonnaise um spreads super evenly and thinly and also it browns more slowly than the butter so to me the key to a amazing grilled cheese sandwich is time and to cook it slowly because you want you want the heat to penetrate the sandwich slowly so that the the outside gets beautifully crisp and browned um, edge to edge and this cheese on the inside becomes incredibly molten 
you know, gooey, heated all the way through. And the mayonnaise actually makes the bread, somehow, I don't know the alchemy of this, but the bread comes out a little bit almost fluffier. So you've got this crisp outer layer, this sort of fluffy bread in between, and then this incredibly luscious, gooey cheese on the inside. It also has a little bit of tang to it, flavor-wise, um, which I really like, um, the mayonnaise does, because there's a little bit of acid in, in a mayonnaise. So I really like it. Well, I can't. I did not have a chance to try this beforehand, but since I pride myself on my grilled cheese making, I'm I'm going to have to and report back, and we'll ask our listeners to to weigh in on whether they're Please horrified, do. as some Please. people I mentioned this too <laughs> were, or or um, think it's a revelation. Try but it before I, you knock it. Exactly. So everyone has to try. It. You can't com- call in and complain or write in and complain if you haven't already tried. It. And then I thought I was also telling, why did you include a grilled cheese recipe beyond wanting to share the mayonnaise secret? Right. Okay. So all about dinner. I Dinner for me, you know, what is, there's the old aphorism that you're supposed to have breakfast like a king and lunch like a prince and dinner like a pauper. And I, I, I get that from a health perspective, I think, you know, digestively or whatever it be. But that's just not how a lot of how myself and a lot of people I know live their lifestyles. For me, dinner is the meal when people are around and together and we have time, and so dinner is the meal. That said, I don't always have time for a big dinner. Sometimes, you know, it's been a long day, I just need something to eat, or sometimes um, not very hungry, but I still want something to eat. And so I really wanted to include sort of a realistic um, representation of sometimes dinner is a grilled cheese sandwich. You know, maybe it accompanies a cup of soup or maybe it's a salad or maybe it really is, you know, 8.30 at night and I just need something to eat and so it's a grilled cheese sandwich. And the other thing, so we talked about the accessibility of this book and um, and so I tried to get that across. I mean, there's a fried egg sandwich in there. There's a, um, there, um, I almost had popcorn, but I think that got cut out because some nights it is a bowl of popcorn. <laughs> but um, but the other thing that, that, that what I try to do in this book is fill it with recipes. I think you said deceptively simple earlier, Todd, and I tried to write recipes in a way that it you know they're gateways. So here's a grilled cheese method, and then following that are three or four of my favorite variations so it's a cheddar with and you add some chutney to it or there's a there's one with caramelized onions and endive in it and and the idea is to get your own uh, creative juices flowing and so it's not just here's plain old grilled cheese but here's grilled cheese and all the ways you can take it someplace else Um, and even turn it into something there's a it's the grilled cheese is followed by a cubano sandwich and then the cubano is followed by these little tiny cubanos that you make um and call cubanitos and serve them with drinks for appetizers you know sometimes so it's it's just trying to get people's um own imagination and creativity going as well as developing the technique to give them the confidence to do that now have you ever hosted a make your own grilled cheese dinner party no, but I'm intrigued, and I think that's a really great idea. You'd have to get like a grill, you know, one of those flat top grill griddles would be fantastic, right? Well, that's the smart way to do it, so it doesn't take you forever. But I have, we have hosted, Em and I have hosted them without that, which sort of a mistake. But 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 you muddle through, and it's shockingly just as you were describing, like all the variations and the different things. It is a deceptively simple, and you think. We can't serve guests grilled cheese for dinner. And then people are, I think there's something so comforting about it and the factor that, you know, oh, who's having what? And actually, Emma last time did some like little menus of different variations that she like recommended. And you could have a number one or a number four. People love this. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you can have, yeah, you can have, and you can have, yeah, all different kinds of things. But it's one of those things where, like, some, the last time we did, I was like, can we really pull this off? Like, especially with food people were coming. Yeah, they loved yeah. it too. I love it. No, that's a great, great idea. Um, not our own. We stole it from some. Well, I'm stealing article. it. I'm stealing it from you now, too. So, <laughs> years and years ago. <laughs> so, I also found a little fascinating tidbit, which which I think highlights some of the neat tips and and kind of guidance that you give in the book. So, what on earth is an air chilled chicken, and why do we need one? Okay, what on earth is this an air chilled chicken? Um, so, um, when chickens are processed, um, they 
the processor, the objective is to get the chicken chilled as quickly as possible. So in a very large processing facility, the quickest way to chill a, you know, a lot of chickens is to run them through an ice bath. Um, and the ice bath is often filled with, you know, certain chemicals to keep it clean and, and um, to help help slightly preserve the chicken, just sort of sanitize and things like that. The thing about chicken is chicken isn't... <laughs> like a public swimming pool, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably not unlike a public swimming pool. Yeah, yeah. Although food food, food grade, food grade public swimming pool. Yeah. No, that's a, real, a very icy public swimming pool. It's a great analogy. So the, the thing about chicken is chicken is very porous, um, unlike more porous than other meats. It absorbs a lot of water, which is why we have trouble browning chicken sometimes. It's a very, it's a wet meat. So when these chickens get rush through this ice bath they absorb water and then when you go to brown a chicken or and you know when you buy commodity commercial chicken there's often a little pad underneath it to and that's to absorb any excess water an air chilled chicken is uh, a, a more time consuming and more costly way to process chickens and so what the processors do is instead of running them through the icy swimming pool they have giant air chillers or i don't know how giant they are but big air chillers and so the chicken is not submerged in water and so it doesn't take on extra moisture that's just water and not chicken chicken juice does that make sense so it's yeah yeah and 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 so now are these quite hard to find still and you need to go to a specialist butcher or can you actually find them at gourmet food stores no um several they're uh smart chicken is one brand a commercial brand that i'm aware of that that if you read the label, it says air chilled. I think Mary's is another brand. Um, and so more and more brands are putting, you know, they're smaller brands. They're, they're you know, sort of higher end brands that do it. And also if you do buy your chicken from a smaller processor, um, it's probably not going to be labeled, labeled as air chilled, but that's just the way they do it because it, t- it takes a large commercial facility to be doing it with the water chilling. So, and the result, you'll end up with, it's a chicken, how do I say this, a more chickeny chicken. It um, has a better flavor, um, and and you'll have much less trouble browning if you're doing a saute or something, and you're browning the chicken pieces. They won't splatter as much, they won't stick to the pan as much, um, because, and they'll take on seasonings better because they're not already plumped up with, with the water from the, from the ice bath. Is this also, I might be going beyond your expertise, but is this also why like sometimes when you have chicken or you make a chicken in Europe, like particularly in France, they just don't have the same massive water content that American chickens do? Or is that for other reasons? Uh, No, I think that's exactly why it is. Because it's just, it's a, it's, it's what, you know, these giant processing plants, it's the way they do it. Um, And so in, you know, in France, they're, they're smaller producers and so that's why they don't have all that water in them when you cook them. Meaning like the, the swimming pool method is easier at a massive scale, whereas air chilling gets harder the, the more and more chickens you're processing. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So it's sort of a guarantee of a smaller, a smaller you know, production facility, which you know, in most cases translates as a better, better product. I think that's such a great and, and, you know, sort of easy to remember tip to look for. And who doesn't want a better tasting roast chicken? Exactly. Exactly. Especially when you're trying to just do it simply. Well, and exactly. And, and, and I think, you know, people are always impressed by a roast chicken, too. And I always think, wow, a roast chicken is one of the easiest things to prepare because you, 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 you just prep it, put it in the oven, and there's not a thousand other tasks that you have to do other than wait. Right, right. But sometimes the simplest are the are the hardest to to approach because I don't know why they make us nervous or something but I agree a good roast chicken a few things better well I think actually the thing that makes people the most nervous about roast chicken is figuring out when it's done if you haven't been sort of if you've been taught to know when a chicken's done by using a timer that 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 is not a fail-proof method so I would say what's your method for how do you tell when your chicken is done so um in the beginning of the book, I have these 15 habits of highly effective cooks, which is, um, uh, but one of them is to use a meat thermometer. Because I think if you if you watch someone who cooks all the time, you know, a, a line cook or someone who, you know, they can, they can s- just by touch and sight tell when something, especially animal protein, is done. But for those of us who, you know, maybe cook a chicken, I don't know, once a month, twice a year, even once, it's, it's better to be safe and sorry. So 
Um, my method is like if it's a chicken, I you know a brand and a size that I know, I have a sense when it's done. But I always double check. Always double check with a. I wiggle a leg and see how that feels. But I always double check with a meat thermometer. Um, and it's also you need to know what. And you know this from France, being spending time in France, um, Todd, is that everybody has their own. Like, sure, it says your chicken should be 165. Well, if you like your chicken a little more done than that or less done than that, that's okay too. It's like it's important to know what you like. Um, and I also, so, um, I mean, I, you know, the chickens roasted in France tend to be a little bit pinker, uh, a little juicier. And if that's what you like, that's fine. If you want it a little bit more done, then you should be okay with that. The other thing I think that, um, makes is a huge game changer for me is to butterfly the bird or spatchcock the bird. Um, and that's, I know not everybody wants to take on that little piece of butchery, which just means cutting the backbone out and flattening the bird. But doing that is such a great way to get an evenly cooked bird um, because you don't have that underside that's sitting on the bottom of the pan and not exposed to the hot air of the oven. And so when you split it and flatten it, the thighs and the legs are at, at the outside, so they're exposed, more directly exposed to the hot air of the oven. And then the breast is actually a little bit protected because it's in the middle of the pan. Um, and so it's much easier to get it evenly cooked. And then the extra bonus is you get crispy skin all over the and all over the bird, not just on the top. Well, and you can often either find butchers who've done it for you or ask them to do it for you um, as well. So you do not, there are many opportunities to not have to spatchcock yourself. Absolutely. And that whole thing about asking a butcher to do things to you, I think is, um, I know we don't all have full service butchers anymore and a lot of our supermarkets you know the meat department but honestly if you go to the meat department and you buy a bird that's you know even if it's all wrapped up you can take that bird over to the meat counter and say could you please cut the backbone out for me and they will they will and they'll probably even give it to you and you can take it home and you know save it for next time you're making chicken broth or yes or or the stock pot exactly exactly okay we're gonna take a break and we'll be back to talk with molly about her passion for writing and teaching stay with us we'll be right back My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth-generation hog farmer, and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert, Dr. Temple Grandin, and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens, and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever and are only fed a high-quality, 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming, raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did, and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Molly Stevens about her new cookbook, All About Dinner, and about her forte for writing and teaching. So you've been giving lots of good advice, as I said, the expert is in, um, and I think that's really one of your your forte's Molly is being an expert, but in this very friendly, approachable, like BFF way, rather than this sort of like wagging finger way. And so, and I think also like Julia, and you were giving us a little flavor talking about pieces of, of, of little excerpts from your book of the advice you give. I think your written voice really like leaps off the page in this very straightforward, helpful and enjoyable way. 
And I was just wondering, is that the kind of advice that you give aspiring food writers if they ask you, like that they should strive to kind of emulate being straightforward and approachable? Or what what kind of advice do you usually give, uh, you know, aspiring food writers? I think the best advice that I can give or have given aspiring food writers is to find your voice and to be your voice. I mean, be who you are, because if you if you're not. Um, I mean, if you have a different method to communicate, um, say you're like wickedly funny and kind of snarky and witty and edgy, then go with that because there's a whole, you know, some people love that and respond to that and, and that's enjoyable. That's who their BFFs are, are people who are, are funny and edgy. If you, so I really think it's important to find to try to be authentic with who you are. I I came to I came to writing through te- well I came to writing th- about food through teaching. I was a teacher first and I learned this, you know, from my days in France, my days at La Varenne, that the chefs that I admired the most were the best teachers. And I it started out thinking I might end up in restaurants and realized soon on in that I I didn't have what it took to really succeed in restaurants I didn't have the drive and the the passion for restaurant work but what I discovered was how much I loved to teach I loved to be in the kitchen with people who were making discovery and learning and gaining confidence and to me it was just like that was it I never looked back and so that's how my voice developed because I just I love watching people get the confidence to start cooking on their own and um it just that's it for me so i think i believe my voice has developed from that um and so it's it's the it's the teacher it's just being a teacher first and then developing and then developing as a writer if that makes sense so it's kind of like the teacher in you helped teach you your own food writing voice yes yeah i really do i really do i and and i think that when i first started it was um, I'm, it'd be interesting to go back and compare my writing to my, my, my early books now, but I think the, the, the thing that's the same, someone recently asked me what's, um, you know, what's the same in this book and what's the different, what, you know, in my newest book to my earlier books. And I think what's the same is that um, me putting in as much information, being in the kitchen with you, you know, giving you tips and uh, troubleshooting and doing all that. Um, perhaps I've become friendlier, <laughs> but 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 I don't I don't know if I've become friendlier as a person, but I think maybe I've just become more comfortable that that that's who I am. Yeah, you t- you you talked about that that some of the idea for this book came from questions you got from students, and that pr- prior to sort of maybe not starting to write this book, but in starting to think about it, you kind of put a formality between what 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 should be communicated in books and in teaching, and um, you know what you eat at home and questions you get. Yeah, you know it's funny. This kind of makes me think back to the grilled cheese. Is that I think when I first started out, I was. I'm not hiding behind the technique, but I thought the techniques were what everybody needed to learn. You know, you needed to know this technique and that technique. And then more and more I'm realizing that it's it's the confidence keeps coming up, but it's the encouragement, it's the permission to make mistakes, it's the just getting there and cook because it's really fun. So it's and then the techniques come along with that. I mean, every time you cook you're you're gaining in technique. So I think that it's um and that could just be a an element of my own confidence as a writer and as a feeling like I'm um, had permission to 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 be more personal in my voice than I than I was when I was starting out when you know you're trying to prove something. I think it's also zeitgeisty though in 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 in, a, in the most positive way in that it, we we've been lucky enough to have a lot of the most talked about or anticipated books of the fall and the authors on the show and one thing that is th- that they have in common. In fact, I think yours is the one that has the first like um, table of contents in any kind of traditional way. But I think the commonality is this idea to break down these barriers of cooking as formal and super technique driven and try to bring the audience and a broader swath of people into the kitchen to feel like things don't have to be so hard or stressful and to really share how the pros 
make on a, a day-to-day basis make their lives a lot easier at home yeah yeah no that's a great point that's a great point breaking down those barriers and um, making it more fun and making it less intimidating um, and less formal yeah yeah I think you're exactly right yeah, and I think I, I, one thing I like is like the dirty secret that's revealed that you can do things incredibly simple if you buy really great ingredients. Right, 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 right. yeah. And then there's another one that I talk about. It's like get over hot food. I mean, not that you don't want to eat cold food, but a lot of things, it's fine if it's room temperature. You know, if you make a big pan, I don't know, a casserole or lasagna, you want it to sit anyway. And I just think that we 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 overstress ourselves sometimes by trying trying too much but um to to relax and enjoy it a little bit more if we can so wanted to turn to the teaching side of you and and what you know noticing this similarity between your strength in communication and the fact that you come from you know a, a long career as a successful teacher and that that was very similar to julia and but then i was also thinking about that julia was you know really a teacher and a student all the time she was learning repeating learning repeating back to other people and and do you think that is one of the secrets to being a great teacher is to be an internal student I think it has to be. I just think that and that, there's the secret to being a great teacher or the reason to remain a teacher because you're always learning. And you know, one of the, when I, this book, the, uh, All About Dinner, took five years to write. And part of the reason it took me five years to write this book is because I just go, I call them, you know, rabbit holes in a way, but I'll be writing a recipe. Um, you know, there's a recipe in there. I use sumac in a few different recipes because it's one of the, you know, exciting spices that's shown up in you know in, in um, general cooking in, in the past few years and it's just fantastic to use and so as I th- started to include sumac in my spice cabinet I thought well I need to find out about sumac and so I probably went on a you know three-day research tour to to find out everything I could and that ended up in a you know maybe 200 word essay but the process of going down that you know following that train and, and learning so much about different ingredients um, enriches me as a cook, you know, as a citizen of the world. And, and I also like to think that, that it enriches me as a teacher, too, because I want to be teaching about new things as I, you know, keep talking. I can't keep repeating the same lessons. I mean, there's certain things that remain the same, but I want to bring new knowledge to that. And every, you know, every, every recipe offers an opportunity to find out about something new, I think. Okay, so t- can you? I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but can you give us like what are three things we should take away about sumac? And maybe even for those who might not have eaten it or, or have instant recognition, just sort of define it. Sure. So it's um, you know it's a spice. It's a, but it's a souring agent, and I think this whole notion of souring agents, um, you know, vinegar, lemon, sumac, um, you know, there's a number of dairy. There's you know yogurt and um, creme fraiche all have a little bit of sour in them. Uh, all the citrus and so sumac is one of the earliest souring agents and um, lemons were not originally available in the Middle East and and so sumac is a berry that's ground dried and ground and used to sprinkle on foods to brighten up the flavor and so adding a little bit of acid when you're cooking especially towards the end you know if you're making something and you taste it and it's like okay but it's just a little meh right sometimes it doesn't maybe it needs more salt but sometimes more often what it might need is just a little some brightness and so sumac is um, a really cool way to do that um, branching out from the vinegar and the lemon that we that we normally reach for Um, it's also got this beautiful brick red color which is really striking um, as you put it on on pale colored things like it's often found on top of yogurt and things like that so finding it a lot in the Middle Eastern kitchen and, you know, thanks to people like Adelengi and, um, you know, all the wonderful books that are out there now about food from the Middle East and uh, that part of the world, sumac is something that we're now finding in our, in our you know, spice cabinets or spice, spice sections. So I think that was a great primer on sumac. Thank you. Cool. So I think, especially because we've talked a lot about the approachability of All About Dinner and just your own philosophy, I wanted to ask you what's on your holiday menu and what are you planning or are you taking a break and and going and not doing it at all? So um, I come from a big family and we do get together. I I joke that my family, we, we, we... 
we don't get up from one meal until we know what we're doing for the next. It's just that's that's how we roll. And I didn't realize until I was well into my 20s that not everybody lived. Like, that's just, I always know what, I mean, I don't always know, but I, I like to always know where my next meal is going to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I often joke that I haven't been hungry in, you know, 40 years. But um, so we get together uh, with my family, and um, I I don't know our numbers this year. It's usually up in the 30s in terms of how many people come. And so we do some sort of, it's it, potluck's the wrong word for it, but um, my sister hosts and we will cook the main course and then ask people to, you know, people like to bring things. And so for years we did the prime rib that I wrote about in the roasting book. It was my father would bring it and it was a big tradition and we did a prime rib and, and, and usually... A turkey and back when our numbers were up in the 60s we would also have a ham so like just a lot right and then people would bring side dishes traditional sides and in the past few years we've started to break away from that and um, we've been doing lasagna and then lots of roasted yeah yeah I know I know the first year we're like are we gonna be okay and people loved it it was fantastic and then um but I'll do a lot of roasted vegetables like I was thinking that the carrots that are in the book they're roasted carrots that get topped with pistachios and a little yogurt sauce with sumac um the other thing about sumac that I should have mentioned is that if you buy a jar of sumac and you take off the lid to smell it you'll be like eh, it doesn't smell like anything it has a very inert aroma it doesn't bring a lot the way a lot of spices we expect would, um, but it tastes. It takes tasting it to get to know it. Anyway, so the roasted carrots we'll probably do, um, and then maybe oh, there's those eggplant roll-ups that are in the cookbook. That's kind of a deconstructed uh, eggplant parmesan. That maybe maybe this year instead of the lasagna we do that, um, a big grain salad. No, we change it up. We really do, and but lots of um, lots of cookies and cakes too, though cookies and pies. Sorry, pies. And, and do you guys prepare the meal as a family or like a subgroup or, or d- does it get cooked and then served? Um, we, so my sister hosts and so my sister and I cook at her, in her, at her house, we cook the main parts of the meal and then guests arrive bringing heated dishes and we put out hot plates and we heat things in ovens and it's, it's, um, I'll say controlled chaos, but I'm using air quotes around controlled. <laughs> <laughs> there's a plan. There's a plan, like and there's always talk about what time we're going to eat, and um, it usually it usually goes off. And then when the meal's over, after we clean up, we all go bowling. And is this a Christmas Day meal or Christmas Eve? Or uh, we do Christmas. Christmas Eve is. Um, Oh, it's funny. I just talked to my sister-in-law who's hosting Christmas Eve, and she wants to change up Christmas Eve as well. So we're all into breaking traditions. I think this goes back to what you were talking about before, Todd, that it's like it's okay to do something other or something easier or more fun, and it's really just about being together. Um, So we'll do a Christmas Eve dinner at um, my my brother and sister-in-law's house, and then Christmas Day we do at my sister's. Yes, you're reminded. I actually realized we're sort of doing the same thing, almost by necessity. But l- last year, um, for listeners, uh, Molly knows my mother-in-law, Anne, and Anne had ordered like two geese, two ducks, a chicken, and two giant terrines of foie gras, and then was very unwell. So first could not pick it all up, and then basically was like, I've ordered all this stuff, you have to cook it. And so then we were saddled with cooking all of these um very lovely poultry. And I remember the French butcher said to my wife, Emma, oh, how many are you having? And Emma's like, well, there's nine of us. And he's like, there's like enough food for 50 people. <laughs> so this year story. we've decided that 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 was, we're going to scale it down. Yeah. Right oh, last year we did a porchetta. I, uh, there's a farm, a lovely farm up in Vermont that makes uh, a beautiful porchetta. And so I, I picked up one of those on the way to see my sister to you know to visit and and brought that and it was wonderful it was a great it's fun to switch it up well i hope we've given everyone a bunch of food for thought and we're going to ask all of you what does dinner mean to you what are your go-to weeknight dishes that are simple and delicious or are you changing your holiday tradition right up we want to know send us an email or even a voice moment to contact at joyachildfoundation.org after the break molly's going to reveal her julia moment We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, 
You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Molly, your turn. What's your Julia moment? Oh, gosh, Todd. This is this is hard because, as you mentioned before, your mother-in-law, Anne, I have worked with for a number of years, and she, Julia was a good friend of hers. So I've been very fortunate to spend some time with Julia over the years. And so I'm going to cheat a tiny bit if that's okay. But my first image... Almost of, everyone cheats, Molly. There are very few people that have only had one Julia. Yeah, excellent. I mean, she's influenced us and inspired us so much. But... Um, when we would be at an event or a dinner with Julia, which she was, you know, inevitably the guest of honor, she would find the most or the least significant person, the least known person um, near her and look at them and say, and what do you do? And she was always, I just never forget how she was never starstruck with her own stardom and always most interested in, in um, everybody, everyone, and, and listen and to hear their story and, and spread her it was amazing to watch her um, like that. But then I do have one very specific memory, and this was when we were it in Venice at the Cipriani, and Anne was running some classes. Julia had done some classes, and then Anne was running the classes with Julia, and I was there to sort of help, help, let's just say help. And it was the first year, and we were in this tent, and it had been raining because it was the fall in Venice, and we had this kitchen that we had to set up every day out in the out in the garden and then move it inside at night and it was just I, it was run ragged maybe molly just for people who don't know can you the cipriani is a very unique setting even in venice can you just describe what, where and how the cipriani is set up well the cipriani is the i don't even mean it's i don't know how old, old it is but it's out on what is the island it's on it's on an island off of venice um yeah, so it's, it's on Guideca, isn't it? Which yeah, the, is, it's yes, not the Guideca, only thing on the yes. island, but it's kind of its own island. Right? Yes, and so you have to take, you know, the boat, the launch to get there, and it's this just spectacular property hotel, and it's out on the Judeca, and um, and so we were out there with the group of Americans that had come, you know, come over for a week of cooking classes with Anna and Julia, and we were doing these classes out in the garden in a tent in the rain, and Anne wanted, of course, to set up this beautiful kitchen every day, but then we had to put it away every night. And so all the food, my job was to, to coordinate with the hotel, getting all the food and ingredients we needed and equipment every day, and then getting them all back into the hotel at night. So um, I did not sleep much that week, but it was a wonderful experience. And um, one night I was pushing this cart of equipment back, and I was dog tired and wet, and my feet were sopping. And Julia was coming down from the dinner because she'd had dinner with all the guests, and she stopped me and she said, Siri, you must not let them take advantage of you. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember at the moment I was not receptive to the advice because I was so tired and I didn't know any other way than to be, you know, just get it done. But I always remember her just saying, you know, stick up for yourself is what she was saying to me. Interesting, and how subversive too, because she was there working with Anne, and yet telling tell, telling you that Anne was taking advantage. No, 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 not Anne, not Anne. The, it was the hotel staff, it the Cipriani. Yeah, the Cipriani, and they weren't taking advantage. They just weren't helping. And she was she was advising me to you know tell them I needed more help. And the staff, the kitchen staff, I think had a lot of fun kind of making me run. But no, Anne was not. Anne, Anne, it was just a it was a fun. The next year was let's just say the next year went a little more smoothly. Well, it sounds—it sounds like she was actually giving you advice that to say, and also giving you permission, right, to say you don't have to do everything by yourself. This is a hard job. Ask ask other people. Absolutely, to do. absolutely, yeah. And it was really good advice for someone who you know I was young and really wanted to please and succeed and do you know do what was asked of me. And I thought asking for help was a sign of weakness or a sign that you know I wasn't capable. And she was saying, you know, no, you ask for help. You, you know, you, someone else should help you push this stupid cart, <laughs> for example through the mud yeah yeah but she herself then did not help you push it no she was nor should she have but it was it was (laughs) i've always remembered it i thought it was a good it was a good lesson that we should ask for help that's a great story and taking us to all the way to the 
the island in the Venice Lagoon. Exactly, exactly, in the rain. Thank you so much, Molly. Well, thank you, Todd. It was an honor to be on. It's a pleasure having you, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Molly's new cookbook is all about dinner, simple meals, expert advice by Molly Stevens, with photographs by Jennifer May. It's out now from W.W. Norton. If you want to keep up with Molly, she's at mstevenscooks on Twitter and Instagram and at mollystevenscooks on Facebook. And Stevens has a V in it and an S at the end. And you can also go to mollystevenscooks.com to learn more about all of Molly's books, her classes, including online ones, appearances, and more. To keep up with the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. And it's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin, S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N, on Twitter. Now, you might want to pay careful attention to our feeds, as you don't want to miss the upcoming announcement of the enticing programming for the newly reinvigorated Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, which will happen next March the 13th to the 15th. Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission, as always, from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Remember to give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.